0: Hey, we are uh, on part 3 of chapter 8 of John where Jesus is really, really, really pressing these Jews to figure out who he is. He's been breaking it down in a couple of ways that he just keeps keeps going back to the same thing. And so this is the third uh, and final part of this discussion and really the crux of how everything comes together. Uh, but before we dig into it, I wanted to play a little bit of everyone's favorite game show, We've All Heard This. I couldn't come up with any decent game show music beforehand. So you just got to deal with the awkward silence to start this game show. Um, speak up if you know it. What happens if you drop this from the top of the Empire State Building? It falls and then what happens is a poor person standing at the bottom. Yeah, they die. It goes right through them. We've all, like elementary school, that this is the one as I was checking these, everyone knew that one. So here's the reality, though. The most it will do if it hits them, the person at the bottom might go, ow. Someone smarter than all of us has dug into this and figured out that comparing a bullet and what a bullet takes, mass and size and all the physics equations, compared to a penny, the penny will go, dink, on their shoulder. That's about all that the penny will do. Some we've all grown up with hearing doesn't actually happen to be true. We've all heard this number two, And I felt like this was appropriate to me of all people to put this one in there. A good cry is actually good for you. True or false? True or false? Yell it out. True. Yes, it releases all kinds of endorphins. So after you cry, all these positive things start to come back and help your body regulate. I mean, it's just one of those other things about how amazing God has designed our bodies to be. The third one, this one's special for Keith Gove because he cringes every time. A dog's mouth is cleaner than a human mouth. True or false? False, yes. I have a 13-week-old puppy at home and I can't let it anywhere near me now after doing a little bit of research on this. where It has licked and sniffed everything from this close. It's a non-starter. Our fourth and final one. Everybody dies. Enoch and Elijah were biblical people. Acknowledge that one. We'll set that one aside. Everybody dies. And everybody deals with what their personal expression near the very end, their confidence as they head toward death, that they even get that opportunity to think about it. And everybody who loves somebody who died deals with the reality of death. Two years since my dad passed, and we're still wrestling with what it's like to not have him. That cloud of the biggest, most difficult, final enemy of this broken world, we can't avoid it. We spend so much time either trying to ignore it because it's too painful to think about, or trying to stave it off. And Jesus today goes right at death. In an attempt to explain who he is to the Jews, he's going to go right head on at the issue of death. And what he's going to try and get these Jews to see and John tries to capture, capture for us to enjoy is that only Jesus, only Jesus can separate us from inevitable death. But John wants to make super clear, too, that the only thing better than having our final enemy, having hope to overcome our final enemy, is Jesus himself. And that's why we're all here, right? So this this last part of chapter 8, John's going to try and get us there. So right before I read the text, let me pray for the morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, death can be a very difficult thing when we don't have hope, when we're actually dealing with it firsthand, when we're struggling with it. Help us today. Whatever you need us to see, to understand who we are in relationship to you, who we are in relationship to the reality of this creation, of this design that you hold together, that we see that clearly today, that it stirs up our hearts and that your spirit would speak to each Of us individually and collectively, that today we would have a different perspective, or or I'd increase further for our perspective on death. In your name we pray. So let's take a look at the text, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Now this is all part of he's continuing on. He's trying to point out you guys is what he says right before this is you are not of Abraham. You are of Satan. We are not of the same family and they are taking offense to it. 51 Truly truly I say to you if anyone keeps my word he will never see death. And I do realize I skipped over 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. I would be self-deceived just like you guys are. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, as we start to unpack this, we have to start here. And the Jews made this really obvious and evident. Everyone should die. They didn't point out Enoch and Elijah. They didn't go go to subtleties or things. They went to the universal truth of death is inevitable. And so when Jesus, in verse 51, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here's how the Jews react angrily. Now we know that you have a demon. They don't have any more arguments for what Jesus is saying to them, trying to point out the disconnect between who they think they are in God and who they actually seem to be in God. And so they're slinging mud. It's basically become Jerry Springer. They call him a Samaritan, which is the worst insult you could throw at a Jew. And then they tell him he has a demon too. So they've doubled up on this. He points out his ability to have some involvement in overcoming the grave And they immediately respond back with, you must have a demon. Who are you to say stuff like this? This is outlandish because Abraham died as did the prophets. The best of the best still die. They continue on and build onto it too. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Who are you to say you can do something about death when Abraham, the father of our entire nation, who you've already attached yourself with to through God, he died, and you're going to be better than this, and all those prophets, too? Their initial response is pretty reasonable. From what we know, even all of God's all-Stars have died. Who are you in comparison to these guys? They can't wrap their head around where he's trying to get them. And this is why. Jesus is trying to get them to understand not everyone has to die. But they need to see the idea of life and death correctly. So when he makes a statement, like verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He's trying to get them to think about death like this. There's two parts to life and death. Clearly, these guys are attached to the physical part. That's their lens, that's their view. And let's be clear, most people, that's their lens and that's their view. Because it's the thing we understand, it's the thing we can touch all the time. It's the one thing that we can wrap our heads around. In fact, Now, probably part of our culture is we're adding a third thing to this in our point of view, which is there's so much time and effort that we spend on physical, avoiding physical death, whether it's medication, whether it's all the time at the gym when we're younger, maybe some of it is for looks and and not to use this super derogatory, but vanity. Or maybe it's just to stave off death, the fear of I don't want to die. And now the new place is emotional health. Spending so much time on emotional health, making sure we're good. And that is a wonderful thing, people to feel well emotionally. But when we focus on physical health and we focus on emotional health, but never focus here on our spiritual side, Jesus is trying to get these guys to understand this is what I'm talking about. When I say you will not see death, it's the spiritual side. And he spent all of chapter 8 going, you guys are not connected to God. If you understood who God is, you'd think spiritually as well. And you're not. So his core message, when he says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. He's trying to say, guys, the spiritual side is the most important. You need to know who you are in God. If you knew who you were in God, you'd get this. You'd think differently. You'd see who he is and you trust when he says you'll never see death. That he actually has some authority to do this. And so the natural place to go from here, if everyone has to die but Jesus is trying to say, but wait, not everyone needs to. Who are these people? Who are those who will die and those who weren't. When Jesus makes that statement, if you hold my word, you'll never see death. He's pointing out that the starting place is inevitable death. He's pointing out, guys, this is what we deserve. This is the thing. I come in and I can separate you from that. And so we're going to start with those who will die. Now the first one is super easy. Those who just reject Jesus. Jesus. You can call them atheists, you can pick people of other faiths, just people who want nothing to do with Christianity in any form. It's clean, it's easy to understand. Like, look, they don't get Jesus, and it's pretty clear what Jesus' message is, and they're going to end up on the wrong side of this. But chapter 8, Jesus and John, how he's capturing what Jesus said, is trying to get us to understand the second part. Believers who don't actually cling to Jesus also face this inevitable death, this spiritual death. That seems weird. It seems odd, right? How could a believer, they're believers. John actually captures this in verse 30 and 32. Todd preached it a couple weeks ago. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. There's no caveats to this. He's not saying partially, he's not saying a little bit or they used to or whatever the thing was. Many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He's telling people who are drawn to him, who John doesn't even caveat to actually say, guys, you're, you're in, you're drawn to me. But here's the deal, you have to abide. You have to stay with me on this. And he goes on to explain why this is so important. He's trying to get these guys to wrap their heads around what it's like to cling and what it's like that it matters. There's an immediate and an eternal impact to this. Now, the use of that idea of cling, I keep going to this image in my head. You know the action movie? Every action movie, it seems like there's this moment, someone falls out of a window, or they're climbing up and and the bad guy sees them, whatever, but they inevitably I always go, I was gonna make this another Indiana Jones moment. I was thinking about making that my thing, Indiana Jones, in every sermon somehow. When they're clinging from this ledge and they look up and you're watching this movie, you're in it emotionally with these people. Hopefully it's a good enough movie. You're in it emotionally with this, with whoever it is. They're hanging from a pole, they're hanging from a ledge, whatever. And every single ounce of their being is attached to this moment. Everything in their head, everything in their heart, and every single action that they're doing is to solve this problem in front of them. Below them is awful. They have to overcome it. And this is what Jesus asks us to do love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Clinging to Jesus involves focus on him, everything we think, everything in our hearts, and then how that pours out of us. And Jesus doubles down on that in chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you're clinging to sin in some form, you can't be clinging to Jesus. And he says, there's an immediate impact in your life. You are trapped and you are hung up on this, therefore, not hung up on Jesus. When we're holding on to something, this is what sin is it's not fully trusting God. That's why we all have it, we all struggle. And this is why Jesus is the solve. He's the bridge that connects that. He takes our imperfections and our inability to fully let go of sin during our broken lives. And bridges that gap with God for us. And he says it because of the eternal impact. If you are a slave to sin, you are a slave. And a slave does not remain in the house forever. But the son does. An eternal consequence of how we think and what we do in terms of where Jesus fits into our lives. Now, that beg the question, so what are the things that, that, that keep us from this? If we think about Jesus in the sense of we're clinging on to him, keep running with the, with the cliff analogy, we're holding on to him in our hearts and our souls, our minds, everything is completely engaged in this moment, and we're holding on. Self-inventory very much involved in this. What are those things that possibly keep us? I got three buckets, and again, this is not a perfect full list, but three buckets of ideas. The first is there's believers that only use him when we need him. He's the pocket Jesus. Kind of keep him in here. Things go bad. Hey, Jesus, help me out here. Cool, thanks. All right, great. I got the rest of this from here. It's ideas that fit in here. Like we're self-sufficient. We got this. I'm very capable. I can handle this. We're just, everything's fine. It's fine. It's not bad, it's fine. So what do I need from Jesus? I'm good. We don't actually focus or yearn for him or long to him or keep connection with him. We only go to Jesus when it's game time. There's no practicing that's happening. The second bucket, we're just distracted by other things. We have so many wonderful things that God has given us. And so many other things that we're trying to figure out. Does God really want us to have some of these things? Or is this the best use of them? But very easily distracted by so many things in this world. So those get captured in just basic ideas. Like we would kind of say to ourselves, you know, I just have other stuff to deal with right now. I'm so busy. When do I actually have time for Jesus? Once I get through this one thing... Once I get through this this month-long project or this issue here or I get right with this one other situation, then I will sit down and I'll start to focus on Jesus. I need to get right first. Then I can actually start my pursuit of him. Or the emotional litmus test. I like Jesus, but I get more excited about talking about how awful the angels are. I can think. I think last night's comeback was a fluke. I woke up this morning. I'm like, great. If I use that as an example, you're going to prove me wrong. Thanks. That's how bad you guys are. Won't even hold up for my sermon. Sorry, Ron. Ron's wearing an angel hat. I'll talk to you after, I guess. We all can probably fill in the blank somewhere in here. Is there something in our lives that, when we do the emotional check, I hope, I hope we don't. But what's that thing? Is it getting super excited about our kids' pursuits because it's going to lead them somewhere that just unlocks a, a better life for them and therefore for us? Is it the project at work where we finally get the recognition that we're pouring all our stuff into that's distracting us from who God is? What's the thing in my heart right now that I get that little flutter, that little excited flutter that if you ask me the same thing about Jesus, maybe it doesn't quite go there? Could you imagine any of these when you're hanging from a cliff being distracted by these things that seem so small when you're dangling over the abyss or this precipice or this 50-story drop or whatever the action movie might be hanging from the cliff and going, ooh, look, a pigeon. The hope is that we start to get some perspective here, get a chance to assess our lives. And the last one, very on topic with where Jesus is trying to get him to go, there's just, there's just not an urgency. As I'm starting to age, and doctors and, and people who cut my hair are telling me this, they're nice about it, but they're telling me, you're kind of you're starting to cross over that line where you need to come in and get checked out more often. I'm realizing I'm not as invulnerable as I used to be. And I realized sort of the time that I wasted thinking I didn't need Jesus because I had this. I was good. Whatever the pursuit was. And the biggest piece, the biggest motivator in all of this is death. Anytime we get pain, physical, emotional pain, there's the little part of us that that realizes this leads us a little bit closer to death. And that terrifies all of us. This is how God designed our bodies, and it's amazing. Death scares us, whether we realize it or not. Viscerally, we react to death. If I had someone run in here with a knife right now screaming, everyone would go like this. Because death is terrifying. Unless, like, you're, I guess you're really, really big on horror, and you've desensitized yourself enough that maybe that wouldn't terrify you. I hope that's not the case. But death just seems so far off for so many people. And in various various degrees. For those who are having to deal with it a little more. Whether it's cancer. Or age. Or just the tests right now. You're trying to figure out what it might be. It's a great level set. That God has given us to think about. Who we are in relationship to him. So trying to process that. But. So often we don't. We avoid it. We don't think about it. We don't want to be around it. And so all three of these things contribute to things that distract us from clinging to Jesus. And lead to the inevitability of spiritual and physical death. But let's go positive. I don't want to end it there. Who are those who will be rescued from death? Because this is where John wants to go. John wants to help us understand... Who are those who will get there? John's capturing it's two simple things. The first, we cling to this message. We cling to Jesus. We cling to knowing who we are in the Father. Because that's where Jesus is pointing us. Oversimplification of everything. But when we point to the Father and we understand who he he is and we pursue him, we see Jesus correctly. We see that message in light of why God sent him Why we need Jesus, who he claims to be. And the second part of this and what this text is about is we cling to Jesus' person. The message doesn't have credibility if we don't understand who Jesus is. And so John captures Jesus trying to get the Jews there and it's reaching this apex in this argument. We look at the text going back to 51, the argument before 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews say, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. The prophets, yet you say, anyone who keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you that you can make this claim And Jesus goes basically right back to what he's been saying over and over to these guys. Then, and even when we're reading the Bible now, trying to connect these dots and see him clearly for what he's saying that he is. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If I was doing this for my own and on my own, I'm just like anybody else who makes themselves their own God, but I'm attached to the Father. And he says, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. These people who claim to be attached to God are not. And this is the evidence point, that they're pursuing the downfall of Jesus. And he continues to start to separate himself. Whoops, sorry. I clicked before I got there. But you have not known him. I know him. And if, I, and if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. He's trying to point out you guys are self-deceived. You think you know God and you don't. Your assessment of your life, your assessment of your head, your heart, and your actions do not promote that you are actually pursuing who God is. And here's where he tries to really start to separate himself from them. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. If you knew God... You would not disobey God if you, had a perf- if you had a solid perception of who God is, if you understood him to be, if you, as John said in chapter 1, actually sat at the right hand of the father and saw him directly, you would understand why Jesus is able to live the way he does. Because in the presence of God, you understand the size of who he is, the impact of who he is, the importance of who he is, and the awe of wanting to draw near to him. So he's separating himself from the Jews. And he tries to point out, I'm going to take your hero. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Your hero Abraham looked forward to me. Now Abraham didn't have texts. He didn't have the Bible to go back to. He didn't have the Old Testament to go back to. But God, because of Abraham's faithfulness, revealed enough to understand that not only was he going to make him a nation, but that God's promises by delivering him Isaac, by following through on those all of God's promises of making the nation great and being there with them forever, even through being, needing a savior and that he would send that savior, Abraham knew God would be on top of every single promise. And he would fulfill them all for his glory and for us. So the Jews' snappy comeback to that is, So they say to him, but you're not even 50 years old. This 2,000-year-old Abraham, how on earth did you possibly cross paths with him? And then Jesus picks up his microphone. Truly, truly, he's serious when he says that. You guys know that when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jews understand that claim. There's no... Ambiguity to that claim. There's no white noise that distracts from it. He is making a very clear statement, and you get the sense even from there, verse 59, Jesus says, "I am," and they picked up stones, which is what they do to blasphemers. They pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones? If you've ever talked to somebody who says, you know what, there's lots of ways to get in. Jesus was a good guy. He's a decent teacher. Jesus never actually said he was God. You ever heard that from somebody? There's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus actually claimed that he was God. Point him to John chapter 8. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't dance around it. If you follow me, you will never see death. And why? Because I am God. I am the creator. I am the one, as Paul put it, holds together all things in the universe. I have the ability to actually do this. And while I choose to not take away physical death, the most important one, spiritual death, if you cling to me, if you see me rightly, if you hold on to me with everything you have... In all circumstances, the highs and the lows, I'll back it up because I am God. So what do we do with this? Guys, the best part is there is an immediate impact on our lives. Immediate impact when we get this. You're sitting here because there's been an impact, even if you're pursuing it. If you're still not fully convinced but you're pursuing it, you see something there, you're here. Because you want more of what you're starting to figure out. Maybe you've been doing it for 50 years and you get the joy of this. And today is just another day to celebrate that. And the immediate impact that we have in our lives as we value this gift of eternal life. We realize the inevitable spiritual and physical death is all that we are owed. But Jesus is willing to come rescue us. And so we love that gift. And we realize that since that was the inevitability, since that was what we were supposed to have, we realize the grace that we receive in this that no one but Jesus, we can't do this ourselves. This was unwarranted. There's nothing that we do to deserve this, yet He still comes through and He's still willing to give us this wonderful gift. Which leads to the third point, the conclusion of those two. We value the giver even over the gift. Being saved and being given spiritual life is a wonderful thing, but it's nothing without the person that gives it to us. That giver changes everything. That giver in the highs and in the lows is why we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being part of my life, for coming into my life, for being willing to rescue me. When all I deserved was to lose my grip from that ledge and fall. So when we hear Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, when we see Jesus, we just get excited. We just get this realization: everything's different. And so because of that, we get to we get to be excited to celebrate with Him when the time comes. Whether we all collectively, because He's back. Or whether we all individually get our moment. When we trust him. When we cling to Jesus. We get to party with the best celebrity that ever existed. And here's your takeaway for today. Just one. All of these pour out of us in everything we do. When we cling to Jesus... The realization of the gift we're given. The grace we've received. Who's given it to us and our excitement for a future in his presence. It just pours out of us. So this week, look around your life for people who get this. Hopefully you can look in the mirror and be, walk a little taller. Be proud. Here's the best thing that Jesus does for us. The Spirit has influenced other people's lives so that there's always somebody who gets us a little more than we do. Go spend time with them, savor them, pick their brain, get to know them, just be around them. God gives us this church and this community that we get to rally together and lift ourselves up together over who Jesus is. It's a great moment to assess our lives. I'm far from perfect seems like every sermon, this one especially, I get to stare in the mirror and I get to go, man, what are those things? Where do I get more excited than Jesus? What are, those, what are those things I don't even realize? Where have I put them in my pocket? Where are those moments I need to take them out more? It's a great moment to assess ourselves. And then those around us, our spouses, our kids, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. How can we encourage them to see this? Because when we realize that hanging from that precipice, that urgency becomes even more clear about not only savoring this ourselves but wanting to help other people savor this. So we have an absolutely wonderful gift that God has given us in his son Jesus. In this trinity that is so complicated and difficult to understand, all we know is that we are loved and we are saved if we focus on Jesus. So gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your plan. Thank you for helping us to have all kinds of different ways to get to you. And as morbid and twisted as it may sound, thank you for death. Thank you for the realization, this harsh realization of our need for you. And through that, that you have chosen to pick the worst possible outcome, which is death, physically and spiritually, and to have your son be there to pull us out of it. So help us cling to your son. Help us rely on the gift that your son gave us of the Holy Spirit to see him more clearly and to long for him and to draw to him. We are so spoiled by you. Help us to understand that and to want to give that away to other people. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our God when we did nothing to deserve anything that you give us. In your name we pray.